This year's theme for International Women's Day on the 8th of March calls for us to embrace equity. But what does that mean exactly? And what can we do to create a gender equal world free of bias, stereotypes and discrimination? On this special Women in Economics episode of the Agenda podcast brought to you by Oxera, we'll be focusing on financial inequality and the gender investment gap. Hi, and welcome to this Women in Economics episode of the Agenda podcast. My name is Russell Goldsmith, and I'm thrilled to be joined online by Dr. Karen Croxon, Deputy Chief Economist and Head of Research for Economic Data Science and Behavioural Science at the Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA. Then from Brussels, we have Anna Martin, Financial Services Officer at Bayuk, the European Consumer Organization. And it's a welcome back to the Agenda podcast to Dr. Helen Jenkins, a partner at Oxera. Plus, later on, we'll also hear from Jesse Davidson, who is one of Oxera's analysts who worked on a report that was published at the end of 2022 by Oxera and the Investing and Saving Alliance. The report was titled The Keys to Unlocking Great Greater investment in stocks and shares ISAs. Now, for anyone interested, the International Women's Day website, which is simply internationalwomensday.com, has a great section on it all about equality versus equity. So, Helen, I thought this would be a great place to start. For anyone not 100% sure themselves, could you just outline the difference between equity and equality and then perhaps uh, talk us through why Oxera is focusing on financial inequality and the gender investment gap? in support of International Women's Day this year? So equality and equity do come from the the same underlying root. And it is about fairness and equal treatment, equal outcomes. But a specific distinction has evolved, and that's the focus of this year's International Women's Day. Now, there's no one way to consider what is fair. There are lots of different ways to think about that question. So the distinction that's developed between the equity concept and the equality concept focuses on the fact that people all have different circumstances and different starting positions in life. And while equality is evolved to mean giving each person the same treatment, equity is about giving people the same access and the same opportunities, which can often mean actually giving different treatment to people depending on their needs. And so by considering the diversity that we see in people, then working towards equity means people actually can reach equal outcomes. So a live example I thought I could take for Oxera is around our recruitment policies with respect to which university has been attended by a candidate. Now, equality means that we would treat all candidates fairly on the basis of their current CVs that they share with us. However, we, um, along with many other employers, have recently made a change because we're aware that access to certain universities is not always equal. And so in the last couple of years, we've removed the university attended from the information shared with those involved in the recruitment selection process. And in this case, equity is about removing that signal so that a candidate is assessed on their own merits and not affected by any assumptions or heuristics that are related to their university. And this has resulted in a more diverse Oxera team from a broader range of universities. So that distinction between equality and equity is also really relevant for the conversation that we're gonna have today, focusing on financial inequality and the gender investment gap. We 
are going to hear. And we have already seen evidence that the cost of living crisis has a disproportionate impact on women. Surveys highlight that women generally have lower savings levels, lower income, and are more likely to be the head of single parent households with more dependents. So taken together, that means that women are just generally more vulnerable to financial difficulty when faced with the sort of shock that we're seeing now from the cost of living crisis. And those underlying factors for women's vulnerability relate to ongoing themes around gender bias, particularly in pay and investment choices. So I'm really keen to explore today with Karen and Anna how the issues that arise from earnings and employment gaps, which are then exacerbated by gaps in investment and savings, and then understand how and why they exist. And then we bring in the equity theme, which is what sorts of policies, market changes might help women have more equitable access to financial markets and employment opportunities that are then tailored to women's needs. So the question being, how can we actually break through some of the barriers that we observe and actually see change in how women engage in financial markets? Well, that's a great introduction, Helen. Thank you for that. Um, let's let's bring in our other guests into the conversation then. Anna, perhaps we can come to you next. First of all, do you want to just explain who Bayok are exactly? Yes, sure. Thank you very much for inviting me. And um, Bayok is the European Consumer Organization. We are representing 46 consumer organizations, independent consumer organizations across Europe in 32 countries. In the UK, we have, for instance, Citizens Advice and which uh, representing. Now, you've been looking specifically at, at women's exposure to the cost of living crisis as part of a wider research project by Bayek. Can you just talk us through some of the findings in terms of how women are being affected in this current economic climate? Indeed, our members are looking into the cost of living crisis a lot and they're helping consumers on a daily basis to tackle these crises. And our UK member, Citizens Advice, has analysed this data and um, looking into whom they are helping and which kind of problems. So what they found out is that there were more women um, getting in touch with them to get help. So there were roughly 60,000 women in the last year and towards 38,000 men. So you see that there are more affection of the cost of living crisis for, for women. And this is also very interesting when you look at who is directed or which kind of problems they are coming. And we see that women are often coming with problems to top up their prepayment meters. So they have really trouble to get the level of heating and electricity they need for their homes and also to, to get access to food banks. What we see on the other side is that when you look at the, um, the proportion between men and women in terms of indebtedness, then it's rather 50-50. So in the end, perhaps we have some suggestion here that women manage their budget quite well, but are more exposed still towards the cost of living crisis in terms of access to basic needs such as energy and food. You mentioned um, when you were talking about your organisation, how many countries you you know represent across Europe. Are you seeing consistent findings in that research across those territories? Yes, I mean, uh, all our members across the board have been working on this cost of living crisis, has, have mentioned the same problems, energy poverty, rising food prices, so that there's definitely some consistency. And in terms of women being more affected, I would strongly suggest that there is also consistency across countries, 
because what we see as the main reason is that women have less savings, as Helen already said, and also that there is a significant gender pay gap, meaning that whenever you come in a crisis situation, you're already much more under pressure in normal circumstances, and this will top up in a crisis situation. So if you look at the EU at the total, you see a gender pay gap of 13%, which is quite a lot and is higher than which uh, the, the, we have as the inflation rate now, for instance. Karen, you've been sat patiently there while we've uh, been chatting away. Let's bring you into the conversation as well. Just listening to some of the issues that Anna highlighted there. What, what are your thoughts? Thanks, Faris. And, and personally, let me just say what a pleasure it is to to join Helen and, and Anna and you for this conversation to mark International Women's Day and such an important topic. It's very interesting for me to, to hear about the, the cross-country research, Anna, that you describe, and certainly, you know, key elements of that that really chime with, I think, the picture that we're seeing here in the UK. We do know here that millions of consumers are, are obviously facing increasing pressure now from the rising cost of living with some underlying, you know, vulnerabilities, as you say, that can, can make the times all the more difficult for some people. And we're we're particularly concerned about those that may be bearing rises in things like interest rates and uh, the general cost of living and perhaps least able to face into those uh, changes. Uh, you know, thinking about bills, we know that here in the UK from some of our own research recently that I think it's just under 8 million adults in the UK uh, report finding it a heavy burden to keep up with their bills. I think that that was as of May last year. So obviously, um, you know, some time ago as well now, and was a, a fairly substantial rise on 2020 when the figure had been more like 5 million. Even back last year in May, just over 4 million people had reported missing their domestic bill or credit repayments in three or more of the last six months. And that, again, you know, comparing back to 2020 was was quite a substantial rise as well. And then we do know both from, from some of our own research at the FCA, where we see part of the picture, but also that wider evidence base that women are, you know, have been and, and continue to be particularly hard hit by, by some of these cost of living challenges. Anna, I think you mentioned um, some of the data there from Citizens Advice, which is obviously very sobering. We have some evidence, I think, here in the UK from which who noted recently that the impact on single parents in particular was quite troubling. There are just under 2 million single parents in the UK. That's nearly a quarter of all families with dependent children. And 90% um, of, of single parents are women. So that's obviously you know, big, a big area of concern. So last year at the FCA, we carried out some consumer research on borrowers in financial difficulty. We, we took quite a broad definition of financial difficulty there. And we found that um, borrowers in financial difficulty were more likely to be female. So that was 59% versus 40% uh, of males. The, uh, this, is, this is interesting, I think, and you know, certainly important to understand better. But a high proportion of women didn't respond when their lender tried to contact them about difficulties because they felt uh, reported feeling too nervous or embarrassed. That was 57% of those cases compared to 25% with males. And then when we control for things like age, ethnicity, household income, housing tenure, types of bills they've missed, uh, things like debt as a proportion of income, we see that controlling for all of that, women are significantly less likely than men to make contact with lenders when they're struggling financially. So I think this is really, really important to understand better. 
And of course, you know, when you think about a situation like that and the help and the support that women need, that people generally need to to uh, meet the cost of living challenges, of course, it goes well beyond financial services. But as a regulator in such an important sector, you know, we do have a really important part to play in uh, ensuring people are helped through these difficult times. One thing to mention there is our upcoming consumer duty for financial services, where we're really setting a higher level of consumer protection across the board in financial services. We're requiring firms to really put the consumer front and centre to deliver good outcomes for consumers in general. And we've set out how, in addition, how firms should be particularly stepping up now to support customers in these in these particularly tough times. We expect firms uh, always to be treating customers fairly, supporting those struggling financially with equipping them with the right information, helping them get to good decisions. We've reminded uh, three and a half thousand lenders recently how you know how exactly we expect them to provide tailored support to borrowers who get into difficulty, setting out what more mortgage lenders can do in this space to help their customers. We've told 32 lenders recently to uh, improve the way they treat customers. And actually, so far, eight of those firms have agreed to pay just under £30 million in compensation to about 80,000 customers. We're also, I mentioned the the sort of the engagement piece, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, it's important to think about that. We're working very closely with the money and pensions service and industry to encourage people to get in touch with their lenders if they're struggling and make them aware of the support available. So, of course, this is just one part of a much bigger picture. And um, it's going to take uh, across, you know, I think this is going to possibly be a theme for the discussion that need to, we all come from different vantage points and different uh, perspectives on things, but everybody has something to bring here. And I think it's a um, complex picture that's important to join forces around and really understand to, you know, to to make a difference. And just picking up on one of those points, Karen, about, you know, women being nervous or embarrassed in very strongly more than men in that situation of finding themselves in difficulty. That's one of those equity points, isn't it? It's like, oh, actually, you have to design it in a way that is cognizant of those differences and, and you know, the, all the social conditioning that puts a woman in a position where she doesn't feel able to access the support that's there for, for them. Never mind getting, I and mean, we'll talk about getting into the position in the first place, but uh, some of those behavioural drivers are, are very interesting. It's a really good point, Helen. I think the, um, you know, maybe that's something we'll get into a little bit more later, if you like, some of the, you know, the relevance of behavioural science here, the need to be able to support people as individuals in important markets and, and, and generally, you know, when thinking about the support we could bring together. And perhaps uh, also stepping in here as well, um, beyond the behavioral aspects, also the different aspects in terms of time resources, meaning that uh, women are a lot more involved into care work, caring for their children, but also caring for elderly people. So if you want to make use of social services, going to consumer organizations, that's also something which takes your time, taking your problem seriously and, and going there. And if you are already completely overburdened with a lot of part-time job plus work uh, plus a, a lot of things, then you wait perhaps also a bit longer to to tackle certain problems and makes them even worse. That's a really good point, Anna, just that general thing of prioritizing other people's needs before a woman goes to her own needs. I think that is actually quite a common characteristic. Anna, you, you mentioned there the type of work in, in certain instances. Are, are there any other challenges that women face you know due to earnings and, and, and employment gaps yeah I think I think that's that's really the main ones I mean you have the um, general gender pay gap you have the the care work I mean you have 
general reasons for that for that pay gap and that's the care work it's the part-time working it's also the access to top positions it's the fact that you're perhaps less negotiating for your salary so there's several several reasons and what what is interesting is that there's always a part remaining which nobody is able to explain in terms of literature which is not related to to external factors also the fact that uh, women are working in sectors which pay less or perhaps the other way around that sectors which have a lot of women in there are tend to pay underpaid so it's not all only the women choosing a certain sector but it's also a sector which has a, a lot high women representativeness is paid less than than a sector which is mainly male Okay, well, we said at the top of the show that the focus for Oxera this year is on financial inequality and, and the gender investment gap. Helen, what I'm keen to explore is how all these issues that we've raised so far affect outcomes on pay, saving and investing. And in particular, if there are any significant differences between men and women, and, and if so, why that might be. Yeah, it's a big question. And as I think everyone around the, the table recognises that while we can do lots to manage at the crisis point in terms of cost of living impact. What's really also important is to start from the beginning. So that's why I'd start with the earnings gap. And as Anna has just said, the, the statistics are still showing significant gender pay gaps and that these inequalities are quite persistent. I was going to talk about some recent research by the Institute of Fiscal Studies, the IFS, here in the UK. They've been doing a really deep study of drivers of inequality very broadly. And there's one element of that work done by Professor Alison Andrews and her team, which is focused on the earnings gaps. And they show that the average working age woman in the UK earned overall 40%, 40% less than male counterparts in 2019. And those inequalities arise from all three components of earnings, whether or not the women are employed, the working hours they contribute, and then the hourly wages. In terms of the wage gap itself, then it was, I think, around 19% for working women. And that overall gap has reduced since 2000 by about 13 percentage points. And they find that the vast majority of that, and this is research that is based on the UK population, is around reductions in gap in education levels. So over this last 25 years, women have been attending and completing university and other tertiary education or other forms of vocational education quite rapidly. And 10 percentage points of that reduction, the 13 percentage point reduction in the earnings gap can be explained by the fact that now women and men are much more likely to have similar levels of education. Indeed, women are now 5% more likely to have graduated from university than men. But on the other hand, what this suggests that, as Anna said, that um, closing the gender earnings gap is really quite tricky. So other changes in policy, the economy and society are really not making the changes that we might might want to see. And so I think this is a you know, a big question for us all to think about. 
And another interesting finding is that most recently, the gender gap in hourly wages is greatest for the most highly paid people at around 23%. And it's 10% for those in the lowest earning decile. Now, minimum wage laws are one of the reasons for that outcome, it's suggested. And I think, as Anna suggested, access to top jobs and indeed the heavy influence of motherhood is particularly felt in the um, higher earning deciles. So these gaps, it's found by the, this research, do definitely open up when women become mothers and they exist or persist even where the woman had the higher earnings potential prior to parenthood. And so we know there are really strong social norms around women's roles in parenting that affect their employment outcomes. And so, again, I think an equity lens on this does mean that we should be thinking very much about childcare costs and access about parental leave rather than differentiated paternity and maternity leave and how we might rethink how career gaps are viewed. There are going to be behavioural changes that we need to make to address and seek to close the, the pay gap. Then moving on to financial inequalities, because as we've heard from Anna and Karen, there are lots of challenges accessing debt and managing debt for women. But even when women have income to invest, we see there are barriers to them engaging effectively with the opportunities. This can exacerbate overall financial gender-based inequality. And investing, because it allows people to access the benefits of compound returns and provides them the ability to earn returns in the longer term than cash, then this is a way to help people and help women build financial resilience and get closer to some form of long-term financial stability. So that's why these two things are linked. Yeah, it'd be great to encourage better pay outcomes for women, but we also want to ensure they're managing the money they do have well. Okay, well, it's probably a good time to hear from Jesse Davidson, who, as I mentioned at the top of the show, is an analyst at Oxera. Uh, Jesse worked on a joint report by Oxera and Tizer, the Investing and Saving Alliance. Uh, the report was titled The Keys to Unlocking Greater Investment in Stocks and Shares ISAs. And I started by asking Jesse what the headline finding was from the research. So we were looking in our research into why there's underinvestment in stocks and shares ISAs in consumers as a whole, because we already know that there's an underinvestment. Actually, 8.6 million consumers around the country have more than £10,000 of investable assets currently held in cash. So these consumers can potentially gain from investing. And what we found by looking at customers who have a stocks and shares ISA, customers with a cash ISA, and customers with a bank account with over £5,000 in it, was that over 70% of consumers without a stocks and shares ISA had never considered investing in a stocks and shares ISA. We also found that some groups of consumers were less likely to have a stocks and shares ISA compared to other groups. So women and people from the lowest socioeconomic group were less likely to have a stocks and shares ISA, even if we controlled for all other factors, including income. Okay, so given the topic of this podcast, did you see a gender gap when it came to investing in, in SNS uh, ISAs? Yeah, yeah, we did. So there was definitely a gender effect. Um, about half our sample were women, um, but in the stocks and shares ISA group, only 38% of these people were women. And then from the regression analysis in which we controlled for other factors, we actually found that men are 8% more likely than women to have a stocks and shares ISA compared to a cash ISA and 6% more likely than women to have a stocks and shares ISA compared to a bank account only. 
And this is controlling for factors such as income, financial literacy, and other factors showing that there is actually an innate gender effect, which we can't explain. What do you think might be the reason then for this, you know, a, a reason for the gender gap? So we looked into the different um, characteristics which women in our sample had. And one of the really important ones was actually peer effects. So um, whether people think that people like you are likely to invest in the stocks and shares ISA. Um, if you think that people like you are likely to invest, you're actually 40% more likely to invest yourself. And women were significantly less likely to think that people like them are likely to invest, which has really big implications um, in terms of peer effects and then their likelihood to go on and invest. Another thing is loss aversion and expectations of loss. So women are consistently found to be more loss averse, both in our sample and in the wider literature. And they also have a greater expectation that their stocks and shares price will lose money over the longer term. So both of these factors combined means that women um, are less likely to invest in stocks and shares ISIS. However, we also know that women live longer than men on average, and they already experience a significant savings gap compared with men. In fact, women aged between 21 and 53 hold half of the investments of men of the same age. So this suggests that more work is needed to encourage women to invest and to tackle the gender investment gap. Are there any barriers in, in particularly for women when it comes to investing in, in stocks and shares ISIS? Sure. So we looked at the barriers which all consumers face when they go through the customer journey. And one of the largest barriers was actually the emotional responses which consumers had to key terms which are used in the investment journey. So terms such as diversification, tax-free wrapper and other common industry terms. And we found that although many consumers felt anxious and confused by these terms, women reported feeling more anxious and confused and had more negative responses in general. They also found it harder to complete some of the stages of the customer journey, particularly selecting which fund to invest in and comparing information. And this can suggest that actually the customer journey is not set up in a way um, which is conducive to lots of people and in particular women. And the customer journey is therefore posing barriers. So what do you think needs to be done to encourage more women to invest in stocks and shares ISIS then? I think there are several things which are arising from the study. So the first is the, the point about peer effects, which I mentioned earlier. Women are much less likely to think that their peers are, are likely to invest in the stocks and shares ISA. Um, and this makes them less likely to invest in themselves. So one of the implications of this is that there could be more inclusive marketing material more promotions aimed at women in general and showing that women do indeed invest. Another point is the customer journey. So there are more barriers in this um, which are affecting women compared to men. So making sure that the customer journey is inclusive and set up for both genders is really important. And lastly, there are some indications of wider issues around financial expectations of loss in the stocks and shares ISA and also confidence um, in making financial decisions. So this indicates there could be wider problems um, around financial education and financial literacy between the genders. And this is something which is maybe harder to tackle, but just as important. Helen, just listening to those comparisons that um, Jesse shared, I just wondered if there's been any research around financial inequality with those who don't identify as either male or female. I think this question is, uh, is an important one. And there's certainly the historic surveys have pretty much used a binary coding for, for gender. The census in the UK in 2021 did ask a much broader question about gender identity. And that showed that I think 93.5% of the UK population 
identify with the gender they were assigned at birth. 6% of people didn't answer the question when they were asked it. And therefore, you've got actually quite a small proportion of the population who are currently openly identifying as non-binary. And so that's, that's going to be an influence over time about getting the information, understanding how people identify. And with such small numbers, it can be difficult to, to really understand through survey techniques what are the different drivers for those different people. So most of the research is, is going to be based on people who identify as one gender or the other when we're looking at these differences. I know when previous International Women's Day podcasts, I've uh, given a plug for in Invisible Woman, very influential book, which is about how important it is, how we think about the data we collect and how that influences the sorts of policies that we implement. That's great. Okay, well, thanks for sharing that with us, Helen. Anna, having heard what um, Jesse had to say, what would you say is needed for women to achieve financial equity? What is quite interesting about what uh, Jesse said is that women are less into investing because there is a sort of a peer phenomenon. I think what we should keep in mind is that uh, what we have discussed previously also that there's less savings, sometimes also less job security. So you have less the possibility to do like these long-term investments, which really pay off because whenever you, you, you get investment advice, it's not something about the next three months. It's something about the next 20 years. And that's sometimes more difficult for women. And what we generally observe um, in financial markets, that there is a strong problem with mis-selling of financial products and that there is uh, not a lot of independent advice. That's something which is specific to the European Union. The UK already got that right, thanks to the work of uh, FCA and politics. But we, we really see in the EU that there is a lot of mis-selling due to um, inducements meaning that financial advisors are not independent, but they give advice for the product which uh, brings them the most of the benefit towards products which um, would be better for consumers, but uh, doesn't bring a lot of benefits uh, for the financial advisor. Why am I mentioned that specifically in a, in a women's podcast? I believe that this will affect women quite a lot because if you have a lower margin in terms of what you, that you invested, Investing, you are, of course, more affected uh, if the outcome, the return is good or not. And also because if you if you have less time, less resources to spend into looking for the right product on your own, you're even more dependent on an independent financial advice, which can really help you to, to find the, the right product. Karen, your thoughts? Firstly, I think the it was really interesting to hear, hear uh, Jesse share a little there about the research. And, you know, Anna is really struck by some of your comments as well, you know, and your thinking around, if you like, the decision support that could make a difference. I mean, we've touched on the investment gap, uh, some of the issues there um, around confidence. And, you know, one thing we've seen in some of our research, so in our financial lives survey, which is a very broad, broad-based uh, survey of, of the um, financial lives of, you know, a large group of, of UK adults that we conduct on a semi-regular basis. We found there back in 2020 that a higher proportion of women told us that they have low confidence in managing their money and low, lower knowledge of financial uh, matters, financial issues. And this is obviously, uh, you know, a, con a concern. And specifically in relation to 
investment. We know from other studies that there, as recently as 2020, we we have stats that tell us that there were there are actually millions of people across this country, the UK, with more than £10,000 in, if you like, excess cash, that where a, a significant portion of that could be considered investable. So these were people where, you know, when you think about the um, appropriate risk appetite to have and the, the, the cash that's not being deployed, it raises questions about whether more could be done to support these people to have the confidence and understanding to engage effectively with the markets and invest, invest some of these assets. When thinking about the supply side, we know that there are also firms out there who have been deterred on the margin from providing, if you like, a more mass market approach to in-person advice, even though there are plenty of potential consumers out there who have relatively simple needs in the you know, in the bigger picture and would value the additional support from financial advice and for whom that could make the difference between, between uh, investing uh, this cash or not. And so as part of our uh, FCA consumer investment strategy, we are currently consulting on um, some proposals for a a new and and simpler regulatory regime for advice on investments within stocks and shares, ISAs. The changes we're proposing there, the aim is is to really increase people's access to financial advice, making it cheaper and easier for the firms to advise uh, consumers about certain mainstream investments within that stocks and shares ISA world. So we're looking to build that confidence. And then, of course, that in turn, you know, hopefully that will support women and, and many others as well. And, and it will in turn, of course, you know, support the wider UK economy and making sure we, uh, you know, we do what we can to support positive investment across the economy. So some of the steps we're taking there is include streamlining the, if you like, the customer fact find uh, element of things, limiting the range of investments within the new regime to keep things things simple and tractable, allowing advice pe- fees to be paid installments to sort of, uh, you know, support convenience and affordability and making the qualification requirements for that new regime more pr- proportionate. So a little bit down in the, some of the details there, but the general thrust is to simplify in an area where it might make uh, a difference and and help raise confidence and access. But obviously, it's a balance to be struck between that and you know the very important consumer protection aspect of things. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. And sort of, Anna, as you say, there's a lot can be a lot of reluctance and for women who are feeling financially vulnerable the thought of like locking away money for the future is is can be quite scary but Karen that information you shared about there are actually quite a lot of households with investable amounts of money and that actually when you look over a 10 15 year period if you get that money invested it really improves financial stability and so if you have women less likely to do that, it just exacerbates this problem over time, making women particularly more vulnerable in the future as well. Perhaps I can come in and on this again and really on this confidence in investing and investing the capital you have. I think what we observe, there are different reactions to this. We see that it's quite difficult for consumers to find the right financial products. And then there's the question, what do you do? And what we get from your study is that the reaction from women is, okay, then just leave it on the saving account. I find this market overly complex. I'm not doing anything with it. And what we observe, uh, for instance, for men, especially young men, is that they turn to influencers and uh, ask for advice. And what you get out there is that uh, now a lot of consumers are investing, uh, especially young men, investing into crypto assets, which are completely not appropriate for consumers. 
and uh, are really risk volatile. So what we need also to get out of these results is why are you getting to this conclusion of not investing? And probably it's not about changing very much the consumer, but changing the advice structure, changing the products which are on the market and uh, which are, should be really fit for, for consumers to make a safe investment because it's not just investing anywhere, it's investing in the right way. Anna, I, w I wouldn't mind just changing topic just very slightly. I mean, talking of, of technology, I guess, but in, in terms of the use of technology to make that kind of investment process more accessible for women, is there anything that you can share that's happening in that, in that space at the moment? I mean, what we see uh, more and more is that also in financial services that artificial intelligence is used. I mean, be it with uh, robot advisors, but also doing uh, credit worthiness assessment, etc. And I think there, what is very important to make these products fit for women as well is to really question the data which is used by these artificial intelligence. And Helen, I think you spoke about Invisible Women the book earlier here, and that's really a book showing that a lot of times there is a huge data gap on, on women, or worse, there's uh, stereotypes in the data, meaning that if you have data used on creditworthiness assessment showing that from the past, women have been refused more credits because also there has been stereotypes not granting credits to women because they were fought less creditworthiness. If that data is then used by an artificial intelligence in the future to learn whom to grant credit or mortgage credit or whom not to grant, that, that could be very dangerous. So we really need to question in the future which kind of data about women, but also you spoke about other minorities are used in, for financial product designs. Karen, what, what's the FCA's viewpoint on this? Yeah, it's really interesting. And I, I think... Um... You know, I'm somebody who feels quite passionately that with the um, rise of uh, advanced technologies, large-scale data, digitization, there's both a reality that actually, um, you know, the deployment of, of all of this across markets is sort of changing the way markets function to some extent, not in, in its entirety, but to some extent, and also influencing behavior as well across the markets. And I think it's important to really understand all of that. There can be really important opportunities. I think you know many of us already benefit in many, many ways from, from that trend and that set of developments, but there are some risks that can arise and some of those risks can be novel. And you know, Anna touched on what people refer to as algorithmic bias or algorithmic discrimination, which is actually itself often about the bias that's inherent in the data that is being used to train the algorithms rather than sort of bias being forcibly introduced into, into a, a model, say. So that's interesting. And it can be important when you think about wanting to ensure fair outcomes, fair value in markets like financial services for people with particular protected characteristics, which would include their gender and characteristics of vulnerability. So this is very much in, in focus for us. And at the FCA, we have a, you know, a program of work looking at both the opportunities and the potential harms from digital markets generally, and within that from the uh, deployment of algorithms, including potentially machine learning and, and uh, artificial intelligence, which we see to some extent in the markets and we'll see more of in the future. And we're unpacking some of these issues in collaboration with uh, the something called the Digital Regulation 
cooperation forum, which is ourselves, the CMA, the ICO and Ofcom. So other other regulators, including the data regulator here in the UK. And uh, in addition to that sort of very cross-sectoral look at things, we are um, working in a focused way with the Bank of England on um, our regulatory approach to AI and algorithms and, and put out a discussion paper to provide some clarifications about how our existing regime and if you like our existing expectations under things like our, our consumer duty already apply and would require firms to be ensuring that outcomes are fair, including where in cases where deployment of an algorithm could lead to some risk of biased outcomes in ways that would be sort of socially undesirable and you know, you know, not representing fair value for the individual. And we've also been receiving receiving very helpful feedback from stakeholders across the ecosystem on that work. So that will that will move forward and evolve. But just to say a little bit about uh, you know credit assessments specifically, um, because these were these were mentioned. I mean, this is obviously terribly important for for everybody across the economy. You know, this is a really important prediction problem that sort of you know has a direct connection to welfare and good outcomes for all of us. Can you get a good, fair, accurate uh, assessment of your creditworthiness so that you could benefit from from fair access to you know lending where that might be might be appropriate? And here, our credit information market study has been reviewing the market and is taking some steps to bring about some positive change in that market to address uh, some elements of that market where things could be functioning better. But that would also include some considerations around data quality. I probably won't get too into the detail on that, but it's in focus. And I think there is a, an opportunity there to raise the bar on, on the um, efficacy and accuracy of, of credit assessments, which, which obviously would be including and important for, for many women across the economy. Actually, if I may, I just want to mention, these are all, if you like, both risks and opportunities. I think they often go hand in hand, but I just want to mention something that I feel excited by as a, an opportunity, which is the scope to harness technology more to support uh, good consumer decisions in many markets, but that could include complex uh, markets like financial services, where consumers are often, um, you know, many of us are often quite challenged. Financial literacy can be quite low. These are can be complex uh, product and service space with uh, decisions about the longer term, uncertainty, and quite high stakes. You know, when you think about the pensions, lending products, mortgages, uh, insurance, and really, really comprehending what the best path for, for, for a person would be there. This is something that I think is interesting. And specifically within that world, one thing I wanted to flag, I think, you know, Anna, you mentioned it already, you mentioned robo-advice, uh, you know, which which uh, some of our listeners may have heard of and others may not. But um, this is about um, harnessing technology, data and algorithms to give perhaps a more automated piece of advice to somebody in relation to a decision that that's important to them. So it might be a decision about where, you know, whether to invest, where to invest. It might be a decision. And we do see some real world applications of robo advice in that setting. But it might also be in other settings. We've been doing a bit of research in this space at the FCA. A couple of years ago, we ran some online experiments from our behavioral science team on consumer attitudes towards robo-advice in the investment context, where there is a, a real-world deployment. And then in some of our very recent research, we've we've actually tested scope for robo-advice to support borrowers struggling with debt repayment 
decisions. So this is not something you really see, uh, you know, when you look across the markets in the current picture. Debt advice is available. When we look at those services, those debt advice services today, um, they are mostly designed to help consumers when they're already in difficulty. So you're already in quite serious difficulty. And now um, you're going to engage, you know, some human advice and support to help you out. And we were really interested in whether some automated advice could support borrowers upstream of this, if you like, to help prevent some possibly poor decisions early on that then may compound and lead to uh, greater difficulties further downstream. And so we teamed up with a couple of very good academics from Georgetown and Boston universities. Together, we designed some randomized controlled trials and we put people into hypothetical debt repayment scenarios to explore the impact of offering them robo-advice in that setting versus not different forms of robo-advice and so on. So it's quite limited in, it, in its scope and it was really just a start point, but I thought some of the results were quite interesting. So, you know, high level, what did we find there? Well, we found that Mistakes, are, firstly, are really common, you know, when this representative sample of UK adults take debt repayment decisions without support, then about two thirds of people are making quite costly errors. So this gave us a really interesting uh, baseline. And then when you introduce the option of free robo advice in a randomized way in that setting, we saw that the people who would accept that robo advice and that acceptance stage was quite important. So would you actually trust this and adopt it? Or would you would you say you'd prefer not to? People who would accept the robo advice in that setting, this technology improved their decisions significantly. And then they ended up leaving, you know, not, not really leaving money on the table. Those with the lower financial literacy and numeracy uh, on average were particularly benefiting from that. But about a quarter of participants refused the offer of the free robo advice in these hypothetical settings. They then carried on to make mistakes. And this really gave us pause for thought, you know, because there's something here, obviously, about it's all well and good. Uh, and I really do believe in, in substantial opportunities from technology going forward, but we can't forget the human element. And that, and there may be interesting differences across the population in, in relation to that as well. But there's definitely a reality uh, among some people in, in terms of low trust in algorithms, or as they call it in the academic literature, some signs of algorithm aversion. Sometimes there's algorithm loving type behavior where sort of, you know, all things equal, you're actually a little bit biased towards trusting the technology that may or may not be a good thing. So this connects with a literature that is nascent, but emerging. And I think, you know, it's not all about writing papers, but it's going to be important have some evidence here so that we can support people in the right way and really understand the needs and the preferences. Interestingly, when we when we deployed this tool in these settings, there was no obvious consumer learning benefit from using the tool. So even when it was bundled with educational tips and some sort of explanation of what was going on in terms of the algorithm, then people seem to prefer just a, a more just-in-time kind of support and um, we're not necessarily benefiting from, from any learning element to having that extra sort of educational explanatory bundle. And then finally, the individuals that we looked at, they, they reported being willing to pay a bit more for the tool than its actual monetary benefit, albeit in these, these experimental settings. And that's interesting because it potentially connects to there being a significant mental cost to juggling debts and just being in these, in these quite challenging repayment situations. And it linked, all of that links to something, Anna, I think you didn't use the Term, but you really touched on it conceptually earlier. It links to this behavioral science research on what people call their mental scarcity, where just the fact of, of being kind of stressed out, maxed out, juggling all of these different financial commitments itself can um, be a real toll on people and impede decision making. And, you know, that's obviously something that, that is important to factor in and understand better. And I think, you know, you mentioned the design of a consumer journey and appropriate 
appropriate uh, support for consumers along the, the length of that. And I think un really understanding how it is for consumers is very, very important. So really initial early work, um, but I think it did give us um, the sense that there was some promise here and something uh, important to understand better. So we will be, um, we're exploring whether we would do a bit of further work in this area, maybe looking more at some of the drivers of consumer trust and adoption, and actually, our financial life survey did, we didn't see it, I don't think, starkly in our experiment, but we do know from our own wider survey that women generally report, report being less likely to trust computer decision making. So that, you know, when you think about the rise of digitization and algorithmic support, that's certainly a consideration. And we're keen to explore what it would actually be taking to get to a practical solution along the lines we tested or better solutions that could be, you know, developed in the market and what might be needed to support on the practical implementation there. Yeah, I think that it's very interesting going back to some of the things about women not not feeling comfortable to ask for advice. Now, you also mentioned they may not trust a computer either, but actually if it's done well and the way that it, it's approached and the way the information is presented, um, I, I'm with you, Karen. I think we need to be looking at all the opportunities that we get with technology because it can be much more personalised and matched to the needs of the individual and informed with their consent with with the specificities of their challenges and if it does help really you know lower that cognitive burden then then it might make a difference it's such a good point helen i would just mention as well um there's also the cost the cost side of things so i, I don't really see robo advice necessarily as a, a substitute for human advice it's more that actually when you look at the you know, the wide set of financial decisions that are being taken every day, most of them, of course, are unadvised when you think about the full full range and scope of that. And so um, there's plenty of scope, actually, for technology to play a complementary role. And what that might mean is that there's a, a bit more of a mass market advice available in some in some areas where currently actually people are, uh, are um, you know, for cost reasons, in some cases, perhaps just going, going without uh, financial advice that might make a difference. Sounds like we could do a whole podcast on just that topic. <laughs> There's a lot to cover there. And what about in terms of policymakers, regulators, financial institutions? Is there anything that can be done, you know, more by by them when it comes to you know combating these these challenges? Yes, definitely. I think um, what we see and we have seen that uh, previously is that we still have um, this data gap. And that trickles down a lot to throughout the impact assessment for evidence-based policymaking towards the final legislation. And I think there is really something which we, we at least at what I'm observing at the EU level, that we, we still need to think to really mainstream this gender aspect into policymaking. Just a few days ago, the, the German foreign minister, uh, Annalena Baerbock, she launched uh, guidelines on feminist uh, foreign policy and how to think really the, the place of women in foreign policy to involve them in the solutions, but also to, to tackle really the needs of women um, in conflict situations, etc. So I think that's something which is really interesting because it it helps to, to really tackle the problem. And if you take... Uh, if you leave women outside of the of the problem solution, the problem solving, you will not get to a, to a tangible solution. And I believe that's that's quite true also for financial policies, for all sorts of policies that we really need to to mainstream these gender um, reflections. Uh, what what are the, is the impact on women? And speaking a bit more generally in consumer policy, I I believe that if we take that into account, we 
get also a better, a fairer policy for consumers in general, because a sound framework of consumer protection will really positively impact women. And when you think of uh, lower savings, lower salaries, lower pensions and all this, you really see that you need better protection for consumers and uh, which will be in the end also better protection for the 50% part of, of, the, of the population. You completely agree with that, Anna. And I think, you know, just in terms of wider reflections, because we've covered quite a bit of ground, I think there is something for me about joining up across the ecosystem because some of these challenges are very, very cross-cutting and, and, and nuanced and complex where women are disproportionately affected. So one, um, just to mention one, one incredibly important broader issue is, is domestic financial abuse, which has risen during COVID. And when we look at some of the data around that, according to the charity Surviving Economic Abuse and the latest stats there, one in six women in the UK has experienced economic abuse by a current or a former partner. Um, a recent study from Women's Aid found that 73% of those living with an abuser said that the cost of living crisis had either prevented them from leaving or made it harder for them to do so. These are big, difficult, challenging, but very, very important cross, cross-cutting issues. You know, they don't sit squarely in any, any one domain. Um, at the FCA, we, we, we built some initial insight on this. Um, you know, we did some work on this during the pandemic, and we are hosting a, a workshop with experts in the field to uh, check uh, some of our understanding, deepen our, our understanding in this area, um, and uh, obviously contribute to the wider knowledge, but then also to, to consider ways forward. Okay, well, we're coming to the close of the podcast. Obviously, given we are releasing this episode for International Women's Day, what I thought we could do is just to finish off, if I can get each of you to just think of the most important thing, you know, that we can do to both embrace equity and also to help women achieve financial equality. Anna, let's uh, let's start with you on this one. The, the most important point is really to do all your policies with women in mind and then I think you you already a great step um, forward in 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 making the right right decision because if you have this in mind that women gain uh, earn less that uh, you have a higher digital vulnerability around your women that you have less pensions then you will automatically probably think about the the right policies better consumer protection to make uh, the right decisions. Uh, Karen, your thoughts. Well, I think there's a lot that can be done generally across the economy, uh, across society. I mean, on financial services specifically, um, and I think it's very consistent, Anna, with everything you said, because you know here it's about making sure the consumer is front and centre. So we've, we're setting a very high bar for consumer protection through our consumer duty, um, and we are asking firms to make sure that consumers can really meet their needs confidently in in markets and get fair value from the products and services. And of course, that would apply to all women. And um, it is a an approach that is really focused on the outcomes for everybody. And that should that should be something then that can fully support women, of course, as well in meeting their needs and, and getting to good outcomes. There is a need, of course, though, to continue to build our understanding of some of the particular challenges that, that women face. And that isn't work going to be sort of held exclusively in any one organization or, or part of the ecosystem. I think at times, you know, the issues are a bit complex and need um, collaboration. We need to help women address some of the wider issues they're facing that, that in our case, go 
beyond financial services, but can have a, a you know important touch point there and and have a collective response. And I think a really good ex, you know good examples there are the join up I mentioned, financial domestic abuse, such a, a you know an important complex topic, but more you know, more more day to day. And I think very, you know, a, a massive opportunity when we really think about the backdrop that we're operating against and the rise of technology and digitization. I probably would emphasize that again, because I think it comes with both risk and opportunity. There's everything to play for in terms of harnessing that together as an opportunity to understand women's needs and challenges better and really make sure that they are, you know, as well addressed as they possibly can be uh, with the benefit of all of this uh, this this new technology and data. And so I think that is a really, really exciting agenda. And to do that whilst, um, you know, treading a little bit carefully, of course, around change and safeguarding and consumer protection. But I, I think there are really exciting opportunities in that space. Helen, we uh, gave you the first word on the podcast. So we'll let you have the final thoughts on, on this. I agree with all the suggestions beforehand and also Karen's point that these issues actually are very cross-cutting and you know, you, you can probably start in all sorts of different elements of what affects people's lives. I think I would, if I had a magic wand, I would encourage more balanced parental approach to domestic responsibilities, including childcare. And that will take quite a lot of change to social norms, probably. And also providing good quality, accessible childcare, as we see in many countries across Europe. And there's a great recent comparative piece by the OECD, which I can recommend to listeners. And then culturally or or behaviorally, we do, as we've heard, there are a lot of barriers around accessing finance um, and financial advice for women. So I actually would start with young women and put my energy in now to ensuring that the young women today have the tools and feel that it is part of of who they are to take responsibility for for their own financial future and to be able to take those decisions going forward in their lives. Helen, if listeners want to find out more information about the work that Oxera are doing in this space, where do they need to go? You can just find us on the website at oxera.com. That's great. Dr. Karen Croxon, Anna Martin and Dr. Helen Jenkins, thank you all for taking the time to chat today. Thanks also to Jessie Davison for her contribution too. Oxera would love to hear your thoughts on this topic. So if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, uh, you can comment on our LinkedIn and Twitter posts uh, where this podcast will be shared. If you've been inspired by what you've heard and are interested in finding out more about working with the Oxera team, please get in touch via the website at oxera.com. We'd also love for you to subscribe or follow this podcast Podcast, which you can do on your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed listening, please do give us a positive rating and review. And finally, if you'd like to get in touch with Oxera about agenda or any of the points raised here today, then as Helen mentioned, uh, use the website or you can also email the team at hello at But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.